NPR. In the U.S., brand name drugs are about three times what they are in other wealthy countries. Three times! This is part of why Americans spend so much more on healthcare. And here's how the argument sometimes goes. People might say that Americans pay for research and development for the world. Drug companies typically make up about 45% of their income from Americans. And so the other countries are free riders, so to speak. Making a new drug is incredibly expensive. There are years of trials, failed attempts, and roughly a billion dollars in costs for every new drug that we get. And drug companies are not doing this research and development out of the goodness of their hearts. They're doing it to get rewarded before their patent expires and cheap generics flood the market. So on the face of it, there does seem to be this powerful link between high drug prices in America and innovative medicines that the whole world benefits from. But are things ever really that simple? This is The Indicator from Planet Money. I'm Darian Woods. Today on the show, I speak with two economists who changed my thinking on drug prices and innovation. This message comes from NPR sponsor Arctic Wolf. Their researchers have released the Arctic Wolf Lab's 2024 Threat Report, why will 2024 be a volatile year for cybersecurity? Learn more and get your copy now at arcticwolf.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com switch. My first stop to understanding the link between drug prices and innovation was the Congressional Budget Office. The CBO is a federal agency that prices out government policies. The CBO tries to stay out of politics. Analysts like Chris Adams make sure to be dry and surgical with their words. We provide this information to the policymakers, to Congress, and that's their job to think through these trade-offs. A big difference between the U.S. and other countries is that the U.S. government hasn't negotiated drug prices. Drug companies can effectively charge whatever they like. That started to change last year with the government announcing that Medicare would be allowed to negotiate with drug companies on a handful of select drugs. Medicare, of course, is the big government insurance program that covers mostly over 65-year-olds. So Chris and his colleagues ran the numbers, and they found that the policy would eventually save the government $25 billion a year. So it's nothing to sniff at. But there was a downside. A 1% reduction in the number of new drugs entering the market. What you're saying is that there's no free lunch here. There is no free lunch. Welcome to economics. There's roughly 45 new drugs approved each year. So if this estimate is true, that is nearly one fewer drug produced every two years. So the stakes are high. Like, what if this is some miracle cure for Alzheimer's that the world misses out on? And yet... Chris pointed me to a solution from another CBO study. And this one found that you could make up for that 1% reduction in new drugs by funding the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, by just a billion dollars a year. So the policies together would save the government billions of dollars overall with minimal harm to innovation. And that got me thinking. 
when drug prices are lower, that does seem to reduce innovation. But there might be a bunch of policies that could boost the development of new drugs. My next stop was to Fiona Scott Morton at Yale University. Fiona is an economist specializing in competition and healthcare. And I started with my original question about this possible trade-off to policies that reduce drug prices. And, and I think about things like life-saving cystic fibrosis drugs that are game changers that will add three decades to people's lives. And I'm and I'm yep. hearing all this, but I am worried about are we going to miss out on the next cystic fibrosis miracle drug for some other disease? Yes, and the pharmaceutical industry is very good at playing that tune and getting people worried about that. Look, there's very definitely a relationship between how much profit you're going to make and whether you want to innovate. The problem is we don't just pay a high price for the cystic fibrosis drug or the cure for hepatitis C. We're paying high prices for ancient old generic drugs that are price-fixing or that are the only entrant in their category. We're paying really high prices for cancer drugs that extend your life for two weeks while you're miserable in the hospital. I mean, these are not good value products. The FDA approves the drug and Medicare's administrators generally say, yeah, we'll take it. And there's no ability for the government to say, well, wait a minute, there's another drug that does the same thing that's less expensive. Let's have all the Medicare recipients buy that because it's the taxpayer's dollar and we should be careful stewards of that. There's no mechanism for that to occur. If you could wave a magic wand, what are some of the top policies that you would put in place? I would make sure that we had centers at the federal government or at universities that are evaluating the cost-effectiveness of drugs. Many other countries do this. I think the UK is a leader in this area where you look at the cost of the drug and then you look at how many life years it saves or quality-adjusted life years it saves, and you ask, is this a good deal or not? The point of having these entities is to be able to compare, be able to say, look, drug A costs $100,000 per quality-adjusted life year, and drug B costs $2,000 per quality-adjusted life year. That kind of clear evaluation of those drugs would be very helpful to suppressing the desire of the corporation to just pick the highest price they can. And Fiona says putting a number on cost-effectiveness isn't the only thing she'd like to tackle, because today, drug-making is completely different. In the old days, you could draw a drug molecule on a paper napkin, and it was relatively straightforward for another company to swoop in after the patent expired, make another version, and through competition, you would drive the price down to basically pennies. And while still a high bar, it was relatively easy to get federal approval for that generic drug. Most money for drugs is now spent on what's called biologics. These are complex molecules grown from living sources. Botox, monoclonal antibodies, and insulin. These are all biologics. And Fiona argues that the generic biologics for these drugs, known as biosimilars, they face too high a hurdle from the FDA to get approved. We're not producing competitive outcomes there at all, partly through the procurement problems that I mentioned, but also because biosimilars, they can't get into the market. And we know that these biosimilars are are safe and easy to make because there are dozens of them in Europe, because the Europeans move faster on this front and didn't put as many barriers in in the way. And the result of that has been very massively declining prices for biologics in Europe. And we don't have that in the United States. 
It's true that the FDA does have a reputation for being slow and bureaucratic. Speeding drug trial approvals could be another way to increase innovation without higher drug prices. Sometimes people say, oh, we can't have lower drug prices because it's complicated. And I think that's actually not true. We know quite well how to lower drug prices and do it in a way that preserves innovation and preserves incentives properly. But um, we have a political system that can't deliver us that improvement. So I came into the story seeing this really knotty dilemma between prices and new drugs. But after talking with Chris Adams and Fiona Scott Morton, I had kind of an optimism. There are some really sharp people out there with a lot of ideas for boosting not just the number of new drugs, but the cost-effectiveness of drugs. This episode was produced by Brittany Cronin with engineering by Josh Newell. Sierra Juarez is our fact-checker. VLA is our senior producer. And Kate Cannon edits the show. The Indicator is a production of NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Greenlight. Want to teach your kids financial literacy? With Greenlight, kids and teens use a debit card of their own, while parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and savings in the app. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research, on, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR.